you're looking at fish sometimes that could be over a meter long. These things are a meter long, but they're also two feet deep. Do you know what I mean? And just the, the power of saltwater fish then is mental. It's just a different level of, of power dealing with saltwater fish. Like they, I'd often say to guests, like even a three or four pound bone fish, he'd pull a salmon backwards like. The power is just, it's just mental like. Hello and welcome to the Ireland on the Fly podcast about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. We've all seen the pictures of far-flung fly fishing destinations with anglers holding huge fish and a guide beside them looking just as happy to have seen such a monster fish landed. And I'm sure you've probably thought, now that's a job I wouldn't mind doing. Working, living and fishing in some of the most incredible fly fishing destinations in the world. How could you not love it? But what's it really like? Beyond the Instagram pictures of giant fish and smiling guests, it's also a nomadic life cut off from society for most of the year and certainly not a life for everyone. Matthew Salon is a Clare man who has followed this path, guiding on the Panoi in Patagonia, the Seychelles and Iceland, and he joins us on this week's show with some tall tales and insights into the guiding life. And Tom, before we hear from Matthew, I'm just wondering, did the guiding life abroad ever interest you? Yeah, well, actually, yeah, a couple of times I had, a, I had an offer back in the, in the early 90s for an American uh, guy, Jim Rapine, who since passed away, but he had, a, he had got lodged down in Chile, and he approached me after... Um, he was over here fishing, and he asked me to join. But uh, and funny, we touched on it there when I asked Matthew, and you'll hear it later when we're talking to him. Uh, I wasn't the single man at the time, <laughs> so you know, uh, just just couldn't because you realise when you're at that, you know, you it, it's it's very nomadic and it's very it's not suited to having a partner or having a family or whatever. Like you just we, we'll hear it when we talk to Matthew a couple of times. Then further on, uh, yeah, opportunities again certain things happened here with me and nearly did go again um but for some reason i didn't mm. and um i had the opportunity again and that would have been down to um down to south america but didn't bother yeah it's always interested me um but it's 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 a you know it's a, it's a tough enough lifestyle and uh, it's great to chat to matthew there but um you know as he says and it's 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 not the easiest thing in the world. It's not. And I'm fascinated by it because, um, like I said, when I was in Greenland last year, you know, I got to meet the guides and because it is, you're just totally cut off. Like it's like there's something um, enticing about it for the first time you do it, I'd say. But to, to do it year after year, um, you know, I met one of the guides also in Greenland. He'd been he was in his 50s, probably must have been doing it for 20 years. And it's physically demanding. Yeah, I remember you saying that. And I and I was thinking of that actually when we were chatting to Matthew because that run through because I was sort of imagining that most of the guys were going to be that bit younger. But then I remember you talking about Greenland. And, but then somebody like Lawson and maybe I don't know Matthew. It suits. It's admirable to think. Why Why should we all go down the nine to five get a job route? Like you know, we say, oh, that's not normal. What he's doing, but you know, for him, what we're doing, well. Okay, like the nine to five is involved. Exactly. You know, he's outside, you know, what we perceive to be normal. You know, doesn't necessarily mean it's normal. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and it's there's a lot to be said for it, like in terms of, and, and that's why I did ask him about, you know, and I, I, I touch on it again when, you know, there's a way is, you know, you're out of the loop of politics, current affairs, the ways of the world, and you realize it doesn't matter a huge amount. <laughs> I actually remember you saying that when you came back and it was almost as if, you enjoy that part as much as anything else yeah, yeah you, you know, know it is and so to be able to uh, and that's why i was fascinated when chatting to matthew um you know to be able to do that and that's that's his life you know that's it's cut mm-hmm. off from everything you know um to a certain extent and to see the world like he's patagonia ponoy seychelles some of the places he's been he's going to argentina in the winter fishing himself i think he said he's going yeah, to mexico as well like it's fair play to him to me i asked him about them the saltwater, the Seychelles, it was, um, you know, it's tough. Yeah. It's you know, you know, actually. you listen to your day there and he, and he mentioned that, you know, I mean, what he thought the bell ringer and you'll hear about it later. I mean, that's in the bar. Okay. That's great. But you know, he used to be up early in the morning. Yeah. Your day isn't get over. Everything like. ready again. And you, that's the one thing. And I know from Ben guide here, you know, he's there for six months and it's one week slot and all those people are on their holidays. Mm-hmm. Right. And they want you to join in the revelry and the fact that they're on holidays. But, you know, he's there for a six-month period right through. So, you know, you can understand 
what he's saying, you know, why of all of them, that one is the one he found the most physically draining. Plus the fact as well, and he touches on it um, as different to freshwater fishing, how actual it was actually physically demanding and what he had to do and working in the boats. Yeah. But uh, listen to it. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. Really oh, it good. is. It is. And, and from a Clare man, and he, <laughs> although in fairness to him, he says it always comes back to once he's back for Mayfly on the Derg. <laughs> That's all yeah, that matters. Isn't that great, actually? <laughs> and, he, and he touches upon that, about what we, what we have here in Ireland. And let us yeah. not forget that. Yeah, you know? exactly. Exactly. What we have here is kind of cool. Well, listen, let's hear from Matthew now. And uh, I first asked him how he got into the whole uh, guiding business internationally. Yeah, so I suppose growing up, I was always made into the fishing. I just got the bug early, probably. Um, I would have grown up in a place called Tulla, which is just east of Ennis in County Clare. Um, and both my parents, then, they would have been raised on the shores of Loch Derg. Um, so it was on Loch Derg, basically dry fly fishing in the May uh, that I started. Um, so going on then... Going to university, I said, okay, I'll I'll try marine science. It was something that would probably, you know, was leading me into an area fishing related, we'll say, or at least that was the plan in my head. Um, and then the last two years of university, then we'll say third and fourth year, I got um, work experience above in Borishul in Newport on the on the Loch Furnace, we'll say. Um, so, yeah, I was assistant fisheries manager there for two seasons. Um, but when I got up there, initially, Pat Hughes, uh, the fisheries manager there, he said, when he realized I was mad into fishing, he said, uh, why don't you do a bit of guiding or would you be interested in trying a bit of guiding? Um, so I tried that and and really, really liked it. Because, um, yeah, I just... You know, it, it it gives you such an experience to learn about something you're passionate about. Do you know what I mean? Um, and then guiding different guests that would have travelled to these places, we'll say the likes of Panay or Argentina or different places like that, sort of put it in my head, maybe I might go guiding internationally. Okay. Um, so 0-8 was the last season I guided in, in Mayo, we'll say. And I started bombing people with emails. I mean, I I must have sent hundreds of emails to British Columbia, all over the place, all over the place. Um, and I suppose at that time, Matthew, as well, like the recession had start kicked in, the economy had fallen through, you know. It had, it had, yeah, it, it, to be fair, it was a very difficult, in hindsight, looking back in it, very difficult time to get any type of work. Um, and particularly international guiding because it's obviously a tourist thing and, you know, people had gone, you know, they were, I suppose, gone tight a bit on travelling. Um, so I didn't get, I didn't, my first sort of break then was um, was Argentina. Um, as I said, I'd send hundreds of emails all over the world and I said, um, rather than emails, now what I'll do is I'll start making phone calls. So I started, and it only took a couple of phone calls actually afterwards, but I got in contact with a fellow in Argentina. Um, uh, he's the, he'd be the manager of Nervous Waters, is the name of the company. Mm. So I got chatting to him anyway. And I'd say the only reason, to be honest, that he gave me the start was his brother was married to a Nina woman. So there was this sort of tiny Irish connection. It's all um, you need. You just need the door yeah, open so, a little bit. And I sure like, and all I said to him was, "Oh, Jesus, sure Nina's only across the lake from where I fish." You know what I mean? And so he gave me the start. We'll say, um, you know, and I went down to Argentina. I'd done my sort of casting courses and whatever with with Robert Gillespie and and. You know, I, I had a fair idea what I was doing, but I, to be honest with you, I'd never actually caught a fish on a, on a double-handed rod. Um, but Sonny went down there and um, that was, what, spring of 2011. Um, so it was good. Argentina was a great experience, probably a very good place to start guiding in terms of the beats were relatively small, so... I mean, even if you didn't know a beat, if you fished it through in the four-hour session, you'd you, you know you'd be on the hot spot eventually. Like, 
Um, and it should and be like Matthew, where was this in Argentina? Was it Sea Trout in Tierra del Fuego? Sea Trout, yeah. It was Sea yeah. um, Trout on the Rio Grande. Right. So yeah. it, was, it was double handed, uh, spear cast, and. Um, Very windy, I believe. Unbelievably windy, yeah. Yeah, Unbelievably. yeah. Yeah. But the only thing, a lot of people talk about the wind and give out about it down there. But to be honest with you, it always blows downstream. Um, so it was the days that it wasn't windy that the fish would get spooky. <laughs> right. Um, if if you have a 30, 40 kilometre hour wind blowing across a pool, I mean, the cats don't have to be, they don't have to be perfect. They can be splashy and should the sea throat don't know any different. Like. Imagine how many guys would have been working there? The lodge I was in, there were six guides. So we used to get 12 guests in every, I think, change over there was a Saturday. So, yeah, you'd, you'd, you'd get your guests on a Saturday. You'd guide two guests every day and you'd obviously rotate through the through the guides. Um, and then the following Saturday, six or 12 more new guests, we'll say. And were you intimidated at all or did you... Like, you know, first time doing this kind of work, you know, new area, new type of fishing. You would be, I mean, unbelievably intimidated, um, just dealing with the public. I mean, probably the first question you get asked driving out in the Jeep every morning is, how many seasons have you guided here? (laughs) What was your answer? What was your initial answer? I'm sure when I started, I was green as hell and sure I'd always (laughs) tell a question. It's my first season, or it's only my second week, believe it or not. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And for like, you're sort of, yeah, it's just an awkward question to get asked. Like, um, like I used to tell first year guides years after when I'd be guiding, I'd be like, no, I lie to them. Tell them you're guiding two or three yeah, years. Yeah. And, Fake you know it till you make mean? it. Like, but it was, it wasn't, it was intimidating, but like, you're guiding then with people. That unbelievably experienced people like the, the, there was one particular fella down there, uh, Max Mamayev is his name. He was that's uh, he's the main reason I got to Russia after. Um, he would have started guiding, I'd say, when I when I started senior infants in primary school. Um, so really, all you had to do is is keep your head down and listen to what they were telling you. Um, like, um, and they were very open and honest. The guides did like, okay, fish it here, fish it with that fly, and um, so it was a massive, yeah, a massive learning experience. And so you grow confidence then every day you go out. Mm. Um, and what was the fishing like? Uh, the fishing was good, to be fair. Um, I mean, it is the best sea trout river on the planet. Like, I do, I don't think you get anyone to. I don't think you get anyone to argue with that. Like, if you go down for a week down there, you probably will catch the biggest sea trout you've ever caught. Like, um, yeah. No, listen, you'd get your hard days too, but it it is a very good river to be honest with you. Um, a windy, all right, but as I said, that sort of helps the fishing to be honest with you. Um, so yeah, first stint, nice. Matthew, that you were there that first stint when you went to Argentina. How long was mm-hmm. that for? It was, I would have flown out probably New Year's Day and it was generally mid-April we used to come home. Right, wow. So, yeah, you, yeah, you were right in at the deep end. You were. Um, <laughs> and it, they did have a habit then of, there was only six guides, so you didn't have a day off. So you go, you go three months, okay, change over day, you didn't guide, but you might have to drive guests to the airport or something like that, so... Um, I mean, that first season, especially the last couple of weeks, I mean, your head is gone, like, um, yeah. mentally, like, very, very hard. Um, but you'd get used to it. In the second season, when it happened, then you know what's happening to you. Do you know what I mean? As in, you yeah, can't keep... That... Sorry, go ahead. No, that was fairly full on. Like, so if there was only six guys there, like, you were six days on the trot. You are. And, yeah, and then, as you say, change over day. I know from chatting to other lads, like there's a lot to be done. You know, people have this idea that you get to do a lot of fishing. You don't really, do you? No. Listen, you'll get a bit here and there that might be a break in guests or something like that, but it very much is guiding. Um, yeah. And as I said, like at the end of a season, your head is gone. Like, but you, 
yeah, you sort of, you get used to it. You know what's happening you. So that first stint, when you finished at the end of April, when was it, 2011? 2000, so you finished at the end of April, came back to Ireland. What did you do then? Or what, did you, what happened to you then? Oh, I was straight out to Loch Derrick, so the Mayfly was open. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, sure, that's when I got to fish, like. It wasn't guiding then, do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I hadn't planned it like that. That's the way it sort of went. It was it was perfect uh, between the southern hemisphere and the northern hemisphere seasons. I, I've been lucky. I've always managed to get back for that uh, Mayfly period. Um, and at this stage, I wouldn't change it for the world in terms of that's the main reason I started fly fishing. So, like, I couldn't dream of missing that period of time here in Ireland. It's funny, actually, I remember talking to a lot of people kind of involved in fly fishing as a career. It's not something you set out with. You know, you go, I'm going to go to college and then I'm, you know, this is my mapped out career in fly fishing, you know, guiding yeah. or whatever. Did you find it was just you started it? It was something out of college. You got some work. It was a chance to go fishing around the world. It's something that kind of just evolves over time, really, does it? It does. It does. To Like, to be fair now, when I started it in my own head, I said, I'll do it for two or three years and then I'll sort of get on the the real world, if you know what I mean. You sort of jump on the Ferris wheel. Um, but I was very close to giving it up there at one stage. And, and my father, he, he probably knew me better than I know myself at the time, but he said to me, why, why are you giving it up? Do you still enjoy it? Um, and I, I couldn't really give him a good reason. So he turned around to me and he says, well, Dad, you know, I don't think you should give it up. Um, and and I didn't for a finish, uh, but it was, I was lucky, to be honest, that I didn't give it up. Does the longer you do it, Matthew, the harder it is to get back to normal society, I wonder, because you're so used to a certain way of life, you know, um, and there's a certain pull to it, of course, obviously, like, isn't it? You know, that it, you're used to living this way, so it's harder to go back to normality, for want of a better word. Yeah, you, you, yeah it would be. It's, it's yeah, I, like, it's, I find it very difficult to contemplate doing something else. Um, now, I've, I've slackened off, like, you for the winters there for the last five or six years, I'd been going to Seychelles, um, guiding out there for six months. Um, but yeah, I pulled the plug on that now this year. Um, it's just physically and mentally, it's just very, very difficult. Um, like freshwater guiding is all well and good, but saltwater guiding is just that level. There's just so much more intensity to it. Um, uh, what way like, do you mean? You know, yeah, why so, Matthew? You just have to be, you have to be switched on 100% of the time. Um, it's it's all sight fishing. So it's your responsibility to see the fish or find the fish. Um, so like if one sneaks up behind you, right beside the boat, and the guests see him before you see him, you look like a bit of a tool. I mean, it's, it's your responsibility to point <laughs> out, okay, he's coming. You see him there 50 yards away. Um, so you're always switched on. Like even even at lunchtime now, if if we if I drop the anchor, we'll say in the Seychelles, and we're going to have a bite to eat, invariably what you do is you have one rod with all the line pulled out and it's left on the front of the boat ready for anything that might pass. You know, so even at lunchtime, you're not really switched off. Um, and you're on then center hooks all the time. The whole time, because if yeah. <clears throat> he's going to come when you least expect it, do you know what I mean? Whether it is GT or a permit or or anything can happen at any time out there. Is it a different classic guest that goes to the Seychelles, fishing in the Seychelles versus the ones that would go fishing in Patagonia or Russia or Iceland? Not particularly. You'd have a you'd have a fair turnover of guests in all the places that would you know, would would hop from place to place. Um, there would be a, a fair few guests now that I would have guided in, in all all the places I've guided, they've been to Fisher. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, and particularly the Seychelles then, because there isn't too much fishing you can do uh, in the wintertime internationally, um, unless you go 
Seychelles or Argentina will say. Do you know what I mean? Um, so, no, there would be a fair change. of. We probably in Seychelles would have got a higher percentage of American guests, all right, um, because they have Florida and different places than, we'll say, Bahamas, which is only a short flight from. So they would do a bit more saltwater fly fishing than, we'll say, guests from the UK or Ireland. And how did you find it? Because obviously it's so different, the Seychelles, you know, in terms of the climate, the fishing... How did you take to it? Did did you find it enjoyed it yourself? Like, oh Jesus, yeah. I like. How could you not? It, how <laughs> could you not? Yeah. How could you not? Um, only for the seasons were so long, but it's an unbelievable place to go to. Um, and some of the fish, then I mean, some of like the GTs. I mean, they will. They'll actually frighten you. Some of them when you're fishing for them. Um. <laughs> Like these, this like you're looking at fish sometimes that could be over a meter long. There could be like, and they're not like pike. We we'll say you get a pike a meter long. These things are a meter long, but they're also two feet deep. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Um, and just the the power of saltwater fish then is mental. Um, like we used to um every every Saturday when the guests had come in or every change over the you do a tackle setup, they call it. Um, and you like you rip all the line off the reel, check that the back in is tight, check that the back and knot is right. Invariably, if it's the GT setup on a 12 weight, you chop the loops off the back, chop the loops off the front, you retie all the loops. Um it's just a different level of of power uh, dealing with saltwater fish. Mm. Like they, I'd often say to guests, like even a three or four pound bone fish, he'd pull a salmon backwards. Like <laughs> the, the power is just, it's just mental. Like um, the amount of rods and lines we use break. I mean, you'd never consider going out guiding without a spare 12 weight line, at least probably two spare rods, yeah, they're just, they're made to break things, the the power and size of them. Like. Uh, the first time you went saltwater fishing, what was that changeover like? Saltwater guiding, sorry, saltwater guiding. Let's say your first stint in, in let's say, the Seychelles or wherever it was. Was the changeover, how was it for you to handle? Um, I mean, also intimidating, but in fairness, what they do, and I had a good bit of guiding done at this stage, like I would, I'd have probably seven or eight years behind me freshwater. So in terms of dealing with guests, I, you know, I was quite confident dealing with the guests. Um, and what they do do then is they give you a fairly extensive training in period. Um, so what they call, I was shadow guiding. So shadow guiding, you basically go with an experienced guide and he shows you around and you do different moves for whatever the guest might want that particular day. But I think I was training in, in the Seychelles, they trained me in for probably six weeks. Um, nice. So I would have got a, a very good training in period, um, like a training in period in freshwater, we'll say on a salmon river or something like that. You'd probably be good to go after three or four days. Um but in saltwater, that's 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 how much training they give you. Um, so you have to remember the, the big thing about saltwater is it's it's constantly changing. Um, in terms of you go up in the morning, the tide is dropping, and you're going to have a full low at twelve o'clock. So what you've seen at eight o'clock in the morning could be completely dry at at twelve, and um, it's it, there's an awful lot more timing involved in it. Um, in terms of, okay, am I going to get over this coral ridge? If I stay on this move for another hour, am I going to be able to get over that coral ridge to get to my next move? Um, is it going to be too late? Is my boat going to dry out here if I leave it here for 20 more minutes? Um, so, yeah, you, you sort of have to be constantly on the ball, basically. You mentioned those, and that had nothing to do with even the fishing. <laughs> no, no, I haven't even yeah, spoken about it. Yeah, yeah. And how long is the season, Matthew? Seychelles season is long. Eh? I used to go down for six months. I generally go around now, say October time. Um, 
And then I would come home again mid-April. So yeah, that's six months. It's a long season out there. Um, and how many days a week would you be working? You'd be working five, probably six, probably. You'd ha- you'd have a day off, we'll say, um, and then change over day. I don't like calling change over days a day off because it's not. No. Up and you have to load guests' bags for the airport and stuff like that. So yeah, about five days a week. Christmas time, you just get very busy, and you could probably guide seven days a week for for a couple of weeks and would you be out on christmas day yeah i've I've guided christmas day for the last five or six years well apart from covid obviously they weren't open yeah. um Mind you, i'm sure it wouldn't really feel like christmas um you know in the middle no. of the show. No. <laughs> on no. 25th of december no you wouldn't be eating the turkey anyway to be with you <laughs> <laughs> And as well, is that like the days are long as well, aren't they? And I don't mean just the Seychelles, you know, you're up in the morning, you know, you have to be there, the guy, you know, getting ready. And then, like you said, in the evening, then you're checking all the gear as well. Like it's, they're long, long days. Yeah, it's fairly intense, to be honest with you. From as soon as you wake up in the morning, there's almost always something to be doing. Um, We used to get up six o'clock in the morning, go down, get your coolers ready with water, whatever drinks your guests might want, um, load your boat with the cooler, load your boat with lunch, load your boat with the fuel. Um, the guests had come then probably around eight o'clock and you'd head out. And basically you're going nonstop then until four, four o'clock in the evening, maybe even five. Um, straight back then, Clean the boat, unload cooler, unload lunch, unload fuel. Um, and then invariably th- what they do then is they'd uh, have what they call a bell ringer. So if anyone caught a special fish during the day, you'd meet up at the bar in the evening time for bell ringers. Um, that you finished then probably around nine o'clock. So you essentially were on the clock from when you woke up at six o'clock in the morning until nine o'clock in the evening. Long days, long days. And tell me this, so you were also um, in the Ponoy, and were you doing this simultaneously, like, some, you know, wintertime Seychelles and then... Yeah, that's what I did. So, as I said, I started in Argentina, um, and I met the head guide of from Russia in Argentina, Maxim Amayev, I mentioned him there earlier. He was the head guide in Russia. Um, but I met him in Argentina, and, and we got on very well. Um, and I said, any chance, Max, that I could get as far as Russia? Um, so he brought me on then. That would have been 2012. So I would have started in the Ponoy 2012. Um, and I would have went north-south between Argentina and Russia for six seasons, maybe. Um, and then I finished in Argentina. And, and that's when I went to the Seychelles, we'll say. Um, but Panoi was great. Panoi was, yeah, an unbelievable salmon experience, basically. Um, the, the unusual thing about Panoi, to be honest with you, I, I don't know what many people know it. Um, the salmon, they're Atlantic salmon, but they behave slightly differently to the salmon we'd have here at home. Um, the salmon at home, they'll run in spring or summer and they'll spawn that winter. And, you know, go back out to sea. But what the salmon in that particular river in Ponoy, it, it, it's not, it, it doesn't happen in every Russian river, but it does happen in Ponoy. The fish come in, the biggest run of them come in September, October time. So you can fish September, October, catching fresh sea lice fish, whatever. But those fish don't spawn that winter. What they do is they almost hibernate underneath the ice. Um, and when the ice breaks up, then the following May, the fish are already there. Uh, so we'd land out to Russia probably uh, late May. Um, and you're, you're basically going on to a river that's already full of fish. You're not waiting for water. You're not waiting for a run. You're not waiting. They're there, there, ready to ready to eat, basically. Um and they, they hold their condition on, on turn, underneath the ice. They hold their condition unbelievably well. Um, if you'd said to a guest, you know, first week in June, oh, that fish ran the river yesterday, 
they'd probably believe you. That's how silver would be. That's how strong they'd be. Um, so, so yeah, so they're already there when we get there in, in May. You get another summer run probably first week in July. The summer run wouldn't be that strong now, but there is a fair percentage of, of fresh fish in it. Um, and then come late August, September, you have the fresh ones coming in again. And what size? Uh, they, they were, it's decent, mainly grills, but you can get them over, like you'd regularly get them over 20 pounds. Um, now, the, it wouldn't be as big as you might have heard of the Northern Rivers, the Rinda, Karlovka, all those mm. places. They'd be far bigger fish, um, Yokanga as well. Um, but yeah, I'd say the average size in Panoi would probably be five or six pounds. But you would get them. You would get them over twenty. You'd get a couple every week. We'll say, or at least the, the large would like. Was it more in numbers, um, River? Then definitely, yeah, definitely more numbers than than size for sure. Yeah. And when you were there, Matthew, how many guides were in that operation? And was it similar to the operation yeah. in Argentina? Uh, no, that was far bigger. Um, I think there could have been. There could have been 13, 14 guides at times. Right. Yeah. The regular number of guests was 20 guests a week. So 20 guests a week is 10 guides. And you'd need two for days off. So that's 12. Then the owner used to come as well on top of those 20 guests. And the owner could could bring a, you know, a group of five or six people. So, yeah, there could have been at times there could have been even 15 guides in it, we'll say. Um, so, yeah, very, very big operation. And that season ran then from May until October. October, yeah. We wow. used close it, or they still do close it. Uh, they used close it probably the fifteenth of July, and reopen again probably the fifteenth of August. Um, the unusual thing about up there is the, their summers are actually very, very good, warm. Um, so that period sort of mid-July to mid-August, the water used to get too warm. Um, right. so it wasn't worth selling. Um, yeah, and you come back then, as I said, come back then in late August and ready for a, a fresh run of fish, basically. What's the story with the Russian rivers now? So, yeah, the yeah. war <laughs> banner in the works, eh? Yeah. Uh, they're, still, they're still operational. Um Obviously, the, the most of the guests now are Russian, we'll say. Um, but they have started a couple of the rivers, and I know Panoi this year for sure had a small handful of foreign guests, we'll say. Um, and the way they were managing to do it was they would fly to Kirkenes, which is in northern Norway, and then from Kirkenes they'd get a bus into Murmansk. Um, so they cross the Russian border, get the bus into Murmansk, and helicopter out to the out to the camp. Then, um, so by all accounts, I was talking to the boys that it went well, and I mean they had no problems uh, getting in or out. Basically, yeah, I was going to say I thought the border would have been closed, but <laughs> where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> no, when there's a will, there's a way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and uh, do you, do you miss the Panoi? Oh, God, yeah, you would. Uh, Panoi was very special, to be honest with you. Like, I often say that, I guess, like, how long more will you do this? And I often say, like, if I quit guiding in Panoi, I'll quit guiding. Do you know what I mean? Right. Now, obviously, it was taken out of my hands because of the war and whatever. Um, and was very lucky to get to get Iceland as a, as a substitute. Um but yeah, Panoi was very special. It's a very cool river in terms of the beats were huge on it. I mean, a beat could be some of the beats could have been three or four miles long, and, and you're guiding them then from a jet boat. Um, so you can basically access any part of the river you want, just start your engine and, and go. Um, but you could very often be in the wrong place uh, if you didn't know it. So it it was very much up to you in terms of how many fish you caught during the day, uh, which you basically what you're doing is just reading water, uh, which used to be fascinating. It was like, OK, it's too fast. It's too slow. It's too shallow. It's too deep. You're constantly 
um, you know, constantly just searching, basically. Um, and then the very, very beautiful thing about it was in September time, you'd see the run of fish coming through and you could sort of see the whole place evolve as the fish filled the system. Um, it wasn't as if you had, you know, your one set beat. Um, you could drive 30 kilometers downriver in a jet boat and you, you'd see the fish pushing up through the river. Um, you could be on anchor in the middle of the river fishing for them and you see you see them jumping below you and they're like 300 meters below you. Okay, they're 200 meters below you. Okay, lads, get ready now. Get ready. Yeah. They're going to throw us. And they start to, both rods just go bang, bang, bang. That's it. Land the fish as fast as you can. And you're like looking downstream. Oh, shit, there isn't too many jumping below us now. But they're jumping upstream of us. Will I pull the anchor? Will I go chase them? Will I do? And invariably, like a lot of the times, you're like, okay, really mean, lads, really mean. Pull up the anchor, chase them, try find them upstream. Um, it was, it was, yeah, there was a good adrenaline buzz to it, for sure. If you're a fly tire or want to get into fly tying, then this is for you. Ireland on the Fly have teamed up with Fulling Mill to give away a box of fly tying materials with free shipping to one lucky listener each week. With more than 1,400 products to choose from, each perfectly packed by hand, their new range of fly tying material warrants closer inspection. Anyone wanting to see them in person and handle them could do well to get along to the Irish Fly Fair in Enniskillen in County Fermanagh, of which Fulling Mill is one of the sponsors. Held over the weekend of 18th and 19th November, you can not only see these materials being put to masterful use by the likes of Jackie Mahon, but you can stock up from Fulling Mill dealers like Rogers Tackle who will be laden with new stock. From dozens of exciting new dubbings, chenilles, yarns and wools, to perfectly prepared and packaged marabou, zonkers, deerbelly and bucktail, the range is going down a storm. This week's top mover is their new Eco Warrior Dub. Be sure to check it out. And to be even with a chance of winning the £50 worth of materials, just answer the following question. Which hotel plays host to this year's Irish Fly Fair? Email your answer to info at ironlonthefly.com and we'll announce the winner on next week's show. And congrats to Wayne Kenny, who is the latest winner. Plus, the other winners of Davy McPhail's Mayflies and Wilfie Double Triples are Phil Blake and Seamus Nee. Wayne, Phil and Seamus, we will be in touch. Tell me this, was it, um, in terms of the guides, were they from all over the world? Yeah, they used to keep a 50-50 split. So there was 50% Russian guides. And then what we used to call ourselves is 50% Westerners. Right. So they could be been from the UK, the US, uh, Argentina. There was a good few Argentinians in it. Um so, yeah, just a, a good mix, basically. Actually, there, Matthew, was there a law or something or some regulation passed in Argentina a while back that the guides had to be native Argentines, Argentinians? Was yeah. That, ever, that was, there is. yeah. Yeah, there is. Um, the only reason, to be honest with you, the only reason that I was able to guide below in Rio Grande was that the fact it's on Tierra del Fuego, so it's sort of, I don't mind to sound bad, but it's sort of nearly outlaw country. It is so isolated that yeah, yeah. there's no one going to go checking an Irish fella guiding on a river. He, do you know what I mean? It's a but bit they, like West Clare, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I say that yeah, to an East Clare man, but definitely <laughs> northern, definitely northern Patagonia. All right, you wouldn't get away with it. Yeah. Uh, they have to go through courses and get different licenses and stuff like that in order to be able to guide. Which right. uh, yeah, I got away with it below, all right. And then another thing there, and I noticed you mentioned you were lucky to get Iceland. When the war started um, in Ukraine, I mean, and you're saying 50% of the guides in Russia were Westerners, that left mm. a lot of guides without summer work, didn't it? It did, yeah. It did, to be fair. It was just... Yeah, the the plug was pulled basically. Um, one of the particular one of the guys, the, uh, an Argentinian fella that was there with me, he actually managed to get as far as Iceland as well. Um, but yeah, they all had to sort of find other alternatives. Basically, is there a group of guides like you that kind of travel the world? There would be, yeah, there would be a few, a handful, we'll say. Yeah, it's like a cult, yeah. nearly like, is it? 
Yeah, it's some of his, yeah, yeah. Do you have yeah. like a secret handshake and stuff? Uh, we wouldn't go that far, no. <laughs> but do you f- did you find though being Irish, you know, having the bit of the kind of, you know, the gift of the gab, that it kind of helped in terms of the job as well? You know, I suppose you can go anywhere in the world and you say you're Irish and somebody will say, oh, you know, Irlanda or whatever, like. I know, it did, yeah, it definitely did help. Um it helped a lot, to be fair. I don't know what it is. Is it the accent or something like that? But I could tell, I guess, something, uh, you know, if he makes a bad cast or something, I could turn around and say, God, that's pure dog shit. Uh, <laughs> in an Irish accent, you'll get away with it. But I don't imagine if you said it in an English accent or, you know what I mean? Um, that just, the guests would feel like you're cracking a joke rather than... <laughs> rather than giving him a bollocking. Do you know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, I did. It, it did help an awful lot. Did you come across any other Irish guides or were you one of the few that you know of internationally? I, I know. I've never guided. I've never guided with another Irish guide, to be honest with you. Now, a lot mm. of the guests, you'd guide a lot of Irish guests, mm. but I haven't come across any international Irish guides, we'll say. So what's the plans for you? Now, you're back for a while, Matthew. Like, And do you find it hard, actually, just in terms of, you know, when the season ends and you're between seasons, you kind of have to decompress. Do you kind of find it weird trying to, you know, go about normal day-to-day life while you're in between seasons? Probably this time of year more so than, than any other time of year because there, there isn't fishing to be done, basically. Like, it's lovely coming home in April time and you just go straight out to Loch Derg. <laughs> as many throws as you can on dry flies um, but yeah this time of year wouldn't be the easiest but I suppose you're always sort of looking forward to your next sort of adventure then um, like I'm going back down to Argentina there Thursday week for, for the winter and just fishing just fishing yeah so you know you'll be getting ready you ordering fly lines tying flies Um so yeah, you'll be sort of, you'll be on sort of a buzz then as it comes closer. Do you know what I mean? So you're just oh you're just going fishing, not guiding now. No, just fishing this time. Fantastic, good man. Yeah. I, can, you. I can't oh, catch fish when I'm guiding, like. No, no. <laughs> but that's it. It's very interesting. I'll say something to you, and I'd say you get it as well. And it was interesting. It was said to me here by another boatman guide here, and he's kind of he's more old school, Jimmy. And he, he turned to me once and he said, you know, because, like, as you know, as we were saying, guides don't fish. But he said to me, do you still get that buzz when a client catches a fish? He said to me, and I says, yeah, yeah, I do. And he says, I do too, he says. Mm. And there's something about it. And that, I think that's one of the reasons we probably enjoy guiding. That if you brought somebody over fishing, next thing, everything goes tight on them and they're into a fish, that you get a kind of a buzz as well. And I presume you have to get it if you've been guiding so long. Oh Jesus, yeah. I mean, if you didn't yeah. get that, if you didn't get that buzz, you you you, yeah. you wouldn't Biden, to be honest with you. No, you wouldn't, would you? No, you know, no. Yeah, uh, yeah particularly any fish. Just it, it's a like, it's a great thing to see a, a guest reaction when they do catch that fish. Oh. Oh. Um, you know, and and I don't mean to sound bad or anything, but like if if I go out to a river and catch a salmon, okay, listen, I'm delighted, but. Sometimes it's far better to watch a guest reaction than, do you know what I mean? How did you deal with the obnoxious assholes? They just bite your tongue. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Surely, yeah, no, there's none of them in fishing. No, there's none of them. No. Especially not in the salmon lodges or any of those expensive places. Like, yeah, Actually, listen, you're, you're just, after time you get you get used to to you know dealing with guests. You can become more confident with them. To be honest with you. But to be fair, for the most part, I mean, guests are lovely, to be honest with you. Of course, you'll come across the the few, like, but I mean, that's that's life. You'll come yeah. across them everywhere, not just guys. <laughs> but I, re- I really get the sense with you, Matthew, like, you know, obviously what started out is kind of see how it goes. And 10 years later, you're still got, like you're still guiding. And even in between seasons, you're going fishing yourself. Like fly fishing is just your life, isn't it? And how do you see the kind of next few years go on or you, do you not kind of think that far ahead? To be honest with you, I don't actually. I, I, I try not to think too far ahead. Just basically, if I have a season in front of me, then I'm, then I'm okay. So, like, I, I'll go back to Iceland next year, please God, um, 
and I have that season in front of me. So, you know, that's that's about as far as I have I have laid out in front of me at the moment. Physically, do you find it tire, tiring, like, in terms of the older you get? Like, is it a case of, you know, you can't see yourself being 60 doing it, but look, that's a long way off kind of thing. Like Definitely in the Seychelles, yes. That's the main reason I didn't go back down this winter. Um, it was just, physically, it was getting too difficult. Um, I found last season when I was down there, you could wake up at three or four o'clock in the morning um, and you'd have to get out of bed and sort of walk around the room just to loosen yourself out. Um, see, the thing about the Seychelles is an awful lot of the guiding involves you pulling the boat. So you're standing on a platform just overhead the engine um, and you have a carbon fibre pole that's maybe 25, 30 feet long and you are pulling the boat all day long. So you could get up on the polling platform at 8 o'clock in the morning and you're still polling at 4 o'clock in the evening. Um, so your shoulders and your back, oh, they used to be in beats. So basically, like, I won't say it's a young man's game, but it's, uh, it, it's you have to be reasonably physically fit, Matthew. You know, you're not going to, you know. Yeah. Um, now, the salmon guiding, to be honest with you, the salmon guiding or the sea trout guiding, that was an awful lot easier. I mean, you just drive to the drive to the edge of the river and, and show your guests where the fish are most likely going to take. And that's about as physical as it gets, to be honest with you. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that, well, that's an easier, so that's an easier part of it. But de- definitely I'd have to say you probably very much, it's a single person's game. You wouldn't want to be uh, attached with um, partner kids at home, no. would you? No, no they, they wouldn't put up with it for too long. Um, yeah. <laughs> You would see a lot of the first-year guides there now when they arrive on to a place. And it's sometimes the first question I'd ask them is like, well, do you have a girlfriend? Yeah, yeah, I have a girlfriend. Yeah, she's, <laughs> she's cool with it. She, she supports me. That's lovely. But you never see him come back the second year. Yeah, yeah. You know, or you'd see him glued to a like a Wi-Fi hotspot at 11 o'clock at night trying to get shitty coverage to have a <laughs> five-minute conversation. It doesn't work. To be spend, sending the big heart icons in WhatsApp, yeah? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then invariably, invariably, then if you do if you do ring her, you have nothing to talk about, like, oh, I, I caught two <laughs> feet, I missed two feet. There's just no conversation to be had, like, because you're in the middle of nowhere just fishing all day. And I'm fascinated by that, Matthew, because your life is spent in a bubble, so to speak, or off the grid in the sense of... You know, most of us are caught up in the day-to-day crap of life, you know, and you're reading the news and you're, you know, dealing with all the stresses of commuting or whatever, like, you know what I mean? And then you're kind of cut off from all that. Do you kind of, when you come back or when you're talking to guests or when you come back to normal society, do you kind of like look at the rest of us going, Jesus, lads, you know, what are you doing? Like, you know? Uh, In certain scenarios, you would. Um when I started coming back first, so I'd be gone for however long, three months or six months, and you wouldn't hear a news headline for three months. Um, and I used to get back and I'd see the parents here, they'd turn on the news religiously at nine o'clock. And I'm there, lads, why do you have that yeah. on? Like, yeah. <laughs> There's nothing good coming out of that. Like, It's not doing anything for you. Um, so that, that, that was the biggest thing. It's grand to go away for however long and, and not listen to one single news headline for six months it's it's true because I, when I was in Greenland last year um, and I was there for 10 days and off mm. the grid no internet and mm. I, I came back and the world kept turning people's yeah. life you know I was not you know I, I didn't have to be checking the RT news like I said every day religiously to find out what was going it didn't make a single bit of difference like and that's what you kind of realise yeah whether you know what's happening or you don't know what's happening it doesn't make a difference like it's still going to happen it's and we're inconsequential to it all like. and, and tell us this Ashley. so is Iceland is your is that's your next now is that your that's my yeah so after Argentina we'd head up to Iceland um, it's quite a short salmon season in Iceland it goes from July to probably the first week in September. So it's quite a short season, probably only about nine weeks. So yeah, that's that, That's the shortest one I've ever done, actually. It is, it is 
quite handy. So you just kind of see what happens in the next few years, kind of see where it takes you, kind of, is it? And... Yeah, see where it takes me. As I said, yeah, I don't really plan too far ahead. As long as I'm back in Ireland for the Mayfly, I'd be fairly, fairly sorted. <laughs> we keep coming back to this Derg and the Mayfly, fair play to you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was sure, listen, that's where it started. Which yeah. I wouldn't only for the Derg. Like. Well, Matthew, it's been brilliant chatting to you, um, finding out about the whole, the guiding life all over the world. I don't know if people will be jealous, or people will be jealous maybe for a week or two, and then they'd go, oh, fuck that. <laughs> Give me my home comforts. Like. Yeah, maybe for a week. Like The one thing I would say to guests is... When I got my dream job, I realized there was no such thing as a dream job. You know what I mean? Wouldn't change it for the world, to be honest. Well, tell us this, right? Of all your years of guiding, all your years of fishing, Ponoy, Seychelles, Patagonia, Iceland, everywhere you've been, Derg, what has been your most memorable fish on the fly? Probably has to be the first fish I ever caught on, on, on the fly, uh, a brown trout in Loch Derg. That's sort of where it all started. So it has to be the most memorable one, basically. Um, didn't I, I think I was 10 years of age. I didn't even see him take the fly. The father had the engine started and was turning out for another, going back up a drift, we'll say. And just the rod went tight. I was like, it had to be something on it because we were in the middle of the lake. Like, so yeah, that definitely has to be the most memorable one. And the rest was history, as they say. Exactly. It all went downhill from there then. <laughs> <laughs> of all the, all the other places you've been to and everything, it's still the most memorable one is the one on dirt. Oh, Jesus, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, fishing at home, I like far away hills can often be greener, you know, as they say, but to come home and be able to fish in Ireland and like there's bloody good fishing in Ireland. Um, I I wouldn't miss that, that period of time in Ireland for love nor money. Like, yeah, it's definitely like I've been to all these amazing places, but give me give me a couple of months in Ireland during the summer. It's hard to beat it like well do you know what it's good to hear that because sometimes you know when you're living here day in day out it can be easy to be you know like you say the faraway hills are green or easier to be yeah. just given out about what's around us and like you said it takes it to, to i suppose appreciate it you know so matthew ah, yeah. thanks again for joining us tight lines for argentina mexico iceland wherever you end up whatever you end up doing we'll have to follow your story no matter what anyway sound lads listen it was a pleasure talking to you our thanks to Matthew Solon for joining us on the show. Don't forget to rate, review and follow the Ireland on the Fly podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Plus you can keep up to date on IrelandOnTheFly.com as well as on Instagram and myself and Tom will be back with another episode about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland.